0: This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. One thing that I love asking guests on the show is what advice they would give to an up-and-coming designer. When I talked with Paola Maricelli, a product designer at Facebook, I asked her what's the best advice she's been given about design.
1: The concept of validated learning, which at its core means to build something, send it to the world, and measure it. Validated learning gives you freedom to quickly iterate and see what happens. It's much more useful than trying to perfect something for a longer time, all the while relying on assumptions on what could happen. Sometimes just learning something new and applying it to the next iteration is all the success you need.
0: Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A
1: weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice
0: Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. No other email service provider is better when it comes to functionality as well as customer service. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to find the domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Have you heard about Revolve Conference? This conference takes place October 26th through 28th in Charleston, South Carolina, and it's the place to be for talks on experience design, business, marketing, and how they're all related. There's over 30 speakers, including this week's guest, and we're working with Revolve to offer RevisionPath listeners a chance to win three free tickets to attend. So if you create, build, or promote a brand, a product, or a service, this conference is for you. Each ticket includes full access to all sessions and activities throughout the conference, including breakfast and lunch. For more information on how you can win free tickets to Revolve Conference, join our Slack community. There will be a link in the show notes. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're down to 38 patrons, but we're still holding steady at $258 a month. Again, a huge thanks for everyone that pledges your support and appreciation for the show through Patreon. It really does mean a lot. really helps keep everything rolling here at Revision Path. If you enjoy what we're doing here, if you enjoy the guests that we have on the show, if you got any value from listening, if you've been reading the blog and you like the articles that we've been doing, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some great perks like early access to future episodes as well as free Revision Path goodies. Just head on over to Patreon.com forward slash RevisionPath and make that happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and it's a really great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. So this month is dedicated to HBCUs here at Revision Path, And so we're talking with designer, author, professor, and creative strategist, Douglas Davis. Let's start the show
1: All right. so tell us who you are and what you do so my name is Douglas Davis and I'm a creative strategist author and professor at this particular point in my career do largely depends on what day it is Uh, I have about three creative outlets I need to have that I guess the artistic outlet so I teach concept classes in undergraduate uh, communication design graphic design department I definitely need that strategic outlet so I also teach in a capstone class in a master's in branding and integrated uh, communications program at City College. So that's that's my strategic outlet. And then I also have an outlet just as someone who loves people and loves client service. So I'm also the principal of my own uh, firm, the Davis Group LLC. So who I am depends on what day. It's a lot of hats.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of hats. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Let's start with uh, you and your
1: firm. Let's talk about that. When did you start? Gosh, let me see. I think it's been about five years at this point. And really that, well, yeah, June 2011. So five years at this point. Wow, time is really gone. But really that just came out of uh, the fact that, you know, I had been doing this for so long um, in terms of design that at some point you, you think, hey, you know, this might need to become a little bit more formal so that I can grab uh, clients and pieces of business that are a bit larger and that might require that level of formality. So I was just able to make my LLC and continue to offer what I had been offering before as just an independent freelancer.
0: And what's business been like for you so far in these five years? I mean, that's a pretty big milestone to reach.
1: Yeah, business has been great. And what's great about it is just that I've been able to offer just a, a larger range of services than I was just as a freelancer. And it was also great just to begin to offer the strategic part of design as well, just after learning business and becoming a creative who understood business. It's been great to offer clients uh, strategic context in addition to creative content. So it's just been, that's been really, really gratifying.
0: What's, I guess, kind of a typical day like for you? I know you said that what you do depends on you know, what day it is, but let's say for your business, what's a typical day like for you?
1: Typical day really just looks very, very much like just wandering around New York City. What's great is that as a freelancer, when I came here, what, in 1998, I studied at Pratt for graduate school and started working just after a year there. I would basically encounter New York City just by, you know, going to different places that they had Wi-Fi, taking my laptop and setting up my office. So I might be outside in Bryant Park answering phone calls, returning emails or showing up to different places to work. But now I would have to say that it looks very similar because no matter where I'm at, where I'm traveling, uh, I always take my laptop. So there's a very fuzzy line between work and play and between you know actually doing what I'm doing just for relaxing as well as uh serving clients so I may be in New Mexico uh, visiting friends and approving something on my phone back in New York uh, just with my freelancers and or having some call the client while I'm in India and uh, it's, it's always just sort of work life and it's great to to really work around my life instead of the opposite, you know?
0: Yeah. Now, because you say you've been doing this for so long, and I know that we have entrepreneurs that listen to the show, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure they're curious to know, like, how do you find business? I know that what you do with your business does involve digital strategies, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what has kind of been the way that you've been able to find clients to keep things going?
1: You know, what's been really interesting is that after uh, going to Pratt and obviously having that network of people, Uh, I went to Hampton undergraduate and studied graphic design. So there's another network there to build off of. Um, After about eight years in the business, I went back to school to learn integrated marketing. Uh, I went to NYU for another master's degree. So I have quite a bit of networks. And after just being in New York City for a long time, teaching and things of that sort, a lot of my business comes through headhunters who used to call me just as a designer, a freelance designer, to go into different places. It comes from a lot of my colleagues who at first were my professors, for instance, at NYU or at Pratt, but then who became my colleagues whenever I joined the faculty and former students. So a lot of business comes through people that I've known. It's funny because uh, I'm from Lexington, South Carolina. Originally, I was born there and now I'm Brooklyn. But what's really interesting is that in growing up down south, and maybe you can relate to this, you know, there's a lot of the social aspect of growing up down south, having a big family and uh, having uh, families outside of your family and maintaining that large group of people. I've sort of done the same thing. Uh, here in New York City and just continue to maintain those relationships and making sure that I'm calling people long before I need something because, you know, we participate in the same field. And I'm also a fan of the industry as well. So if you were to write an article, I'm going to see it and I'm going to, you know, give you a holler about it. Or if someone is a a designer at a periodical or magazine, I'm going to also look at that and, you know, give you some comments about or ask you which typeface you use. So. It's been great to to maintain that level of uh, network and to to just from that reap the benefits that come from that as well in business.
0: We'll talk about Hampton in a minute because, of course, uh, this, is, this is HBCU That's month right. here at Revision Pass. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But with your business, what, I guess, have you learned over the past five years since starting it? Like, What has entrepreneurship taught you that maybe has been different from the work that you do as a teacher or the work to do as a strategist or anything like that?
1: Yeah. I think what the one of the biggest things that I've learned from just being on my own and being in a creative business is the fact that it is business. Yes, we are choosing typefaces and colors, but at the end of the day, we as designers and creative people exist to accomplish a business or marketing objective. And if... I can speak the same language of my clients, that the business and marketing language, if I can talk objectives, if I could speak metrics and numbers as a creative person, then your perception of what I'm able to actually offer and the value that we can create together changes as well because it moves from, oh, this is a creative person, he's probably playing with crayons and kicking the soccer ball during the day, which we are doing as well. But it moves from someone Who's just executing things to someone who is a partner, a strategic partner, who can help you differentiate yourself uh, apart from your clients. So I think what it's taught me is that this is a business, and I mean, you know, maybe that's something that goes without saying, but I think it's the way that I approach it. From I approach creativity from a business standpoint, and I think that over the years. And this is slightly as a result, maybe of Steve Jobs, but definitely more so after he passed, I think that a lot of people in business are starting to understand design's impact and the fact that you can't just offer something and expect people to buy it because there's going to be five other things that they could also offer. And so folding in designers and design thinking into the beginning of solving business problems versus relegating that to the end of things, the execution part of things um, really does make a difference. So if, if there's anything that I've learned is that this is a business and if I can approach it as a business person, though I'm a creative, it makes clients more likely to take the creative leaps that we've wanted them to take because we can justify it within business and marketing terms.
0: How do you see your business changing now that you've reached that 5 year milestone?
1: I think that it what I've started to notice in the in the field is that business is annexing design like it previously integrated marketing. And I'm seeing that because IBM is gobbling up different digital agencies and adding them into their ranks. I'm seeing that because McKinsey and Company, you know, they're writing papers that have to do with saying, you know, building a design-driven culture is the way that you can not just create products and services, but a way that you can actually engage your customers on a level that you can not only find out what they want, but you can understand why they want it. I'm seeing that because, you know, different re- different big brands are, are becoming content producers and they're producing more content than, you know, Time Magazine did back in its heyday. Brands like GoPro or brands like Coca-Cola, you know, these brands are basically doing what we do. So all of that to say that I see business annexing design. And as a result, I would probably then argue that our design jobs are becoming more important than they were to business previously because of that. And I think that the way that I see the business changing is that clients are not just coming to us uh, anymore for just creative content they're coming to us for strategic context as well and you know that, that sort of I think highlights the the challenge uh, with design education the fact that in design school we weren't taught business you know but at the same time on the flip side because I've been able to go into integrated marketing at NYU uh, I realized that business school doesn't teach how to inspire designers and so what's changing is the fact that since we as creative people have come through for our clients for so long on the execution side, then they assume that we must know strategy. And as a result of that assumption, it sort of highlights, I think, where our professional expertise prepares us to become creative communicator and problem solvers in this field, but it doesn't necessarily prepare us to actually have the best communication between groups. So what's changing is that where you'd be just a a creative person in the past or just a business person in the past and things would go through silos and things of that sort. I think that creativity is changing. And so what clients expectations are of us are changing also and so it's not just that you can be a creative person you have to be you have to approach that creativity from a strategic standpoint you have to understand more about the people opposite you their, the way that they think and what they're interested in and that's that's a big part of what i see
0: right this is a good segue to talk about your book i feel like you've already kind of discussed a lot that has went into it you have a book that's you just recently came out with this this year, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. This year, June 14th, it hit Barnes & Noble. Creative
0: strategy and the business of design. Yeah. So is that just sort of a distillation of everything that you've learned thus far? What was kind of your inspiration behind putting out the book?
1: You know, my, the largest inspiration, I guess, I'd have to sort of trace back to my grandfather. And this is a very interesting, I think a very interesting way to to segue. Uh, My grandfather had a, a standing lunch date with uh, Rush Limbaugh, and uh, that's basically how we met during lunchtime, standing in my grandparents' kitchen in South Carolina, Uh, definitely probably was about eight years old at the time, and I had heard my grandfather chuckle so many years before that when referring to things that, you know, old Rush would say for years. And then one day when Rush is ranting in this particularly offensive manner, it just it registered in my still forming second grade brain. And then at that point in my shock, I kept asking my grandfather, you know, granddaddy, how can you listen to this? Do you hear what he's saying? And without needing a moment to collect his thoughts, our family's, you know, wise gray haired patriarch said to me that I want to know what they think. And that right there introduced me to the concept of seeking to understand the perspective that's outside of my own. And so Fast forward, really this book came out of my need to understand the business side of what we were creating. And again, as I said before, in design school, they teach us how to be creative. And the fact that we are solving business problems, there's not enough of the understanding of what the business vocabulary is and what those objectives are. And so I needed to understand the words behind the pictures, the strategy behind the execution and understand the business and marketing objectives that are involved in the design process. And so that's, that's really all that inspired me to, to really just look back in the history of doing this, uh, my own history of doing this, my own journey and figure out, you know, where are the transferable lessons and let me write this stuff down. So
0: what's been the reception for the book so far?
1: I would have to say that it's been pretty good. I've been booking uh, speaking engagements and people have been, I have three booked from, I think either speaking engagements or conferences, but from what I've seen in terms of sales, I think it's been a pretty good reception. I'd love to know what you think and others, but yeah, I think it's been received pretty well. It's just come out. So I want to see what happens over time, but I, would hope that it's being received pretty well.
0: Well, I think the book is great. I think that you really do a good job with explaining very pragmatically why designers really need to know about strategy. And, you know, to go back to that anecdote that you said about your grandfather, it does help to know what the other person thinks, because designers, at least I would say modern designers, (laughs) when I say modern designers, I mean product designers, those that work at companies that have, you know, sort of uh, forward facing audiences. It's all about empathy, about being right. able to put yourself in the user's shoes right. to know how they're experiencing your app or your service or, or what have you. So I think the book does, a, like I said, a really pragmatic job of explaining that. I think whether you're a freelancer or if you're working somewhere in-house, right. I think it does a good job of sort of setting up the case for why it's important from just like a, a mental standpoint why that's
1: the case. Oh, I appreciate that. And I think I tried to just look back at the points where I was doing really well as a designer and that got me levels of responsibility and additional, you know, team members reporting to me. It got me to a place where there was a different conversation being had at the table. And I realized that at that point I was not able to have the same conversations and I was losing battles because I was falling back on my creative and aesthetic vocabulary to try mm-hmm. to justify what I needed to justify the people that I needed to justify why we were gonna do something and the people on the other side were either business and marketing people or whether it's a client in the pitch they were more concerned with what's this gonna do to the bottom line How's it gonna move the needle and right. I did not know Any of those things because I wasn't taught those things. And as a result, I knew I was losing battles. And I also knew we were speaking a completely different language, but I didn't know what that language was. And then one day I stumbled into a strategy session. Then I realized that, you know what? This is what's been beating me. The times that I lose battles is because I don't know this language. So let me learn this. And that's why I went back to school. And so I thought that it was. Definitely not just me, because again, I'm existing in this field. There's a larger sort of, you know, push to to move, as I was saying earlier, businesses annexing design. And I think that that has started to happen a lot more pronounced way in the last maybe five years. But this was back when there was a choice: do I become a web designer or do I just stick with print? And I feel like the same choice happened: do I? You know, continue to learn execution and aesthetics, or do I learn business and marketing strategy? And so I feel like that was the choice back, way back then. I made the the uh, leap to to really dive into the business side wholeheartedly. But that's not a choice anymore. Now you can't just decide that I'm not going to understand business and still really, I, and again, in my opinion, do well in design. Because if it, if you're just competing on the basis of Your skills, your typography skills or your your Photoshop skills, your InDesign skills, you know, there's going to be a truckload of graduates every semester coming out on the market who will work for less money than you and who are hungry and they're ready for an opportunity right now. And so as a result, if it's just about the aesthetics and if you don't evolve at all, there's going to be a really short time span in your career. And that time span is actually getting shorter as The speed of business continues to sort of move us. The next Twitter comes out, these Snapchat or or the next whatever comes out. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really important to understand how to leverage that stuff in the boardroom, because if you can't, if it's just about what it looks like, if it's just about aesthetics, you'll lose battles like I did before I understood the language of business.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, even not just graduates, you know, when you say that there's going to be this new crop that's coming out, I mean, you're also competing On that end, especially with how businesses are looking at it, if they're businesses that have never approached creative projects in a way, you're also contending with people that are overseas in other countries where the cost of living is much, much lower that will do the same work you do or comparable, but the client may not know that. Absolutely. But will do what they think in their minds is the same level of work for pennies on the dollar. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah. now
1: what you're talking about, This. so what, Thomas so L. Friedman wrote a book called the, the World is Flat, and he was basically just talking about the fact that he literally was making the same point that you're making right now, that you're not just competing with the designer down the street. You're competing with the designer in Russia or the developer in Russia. You're competing with the designers or the back-end developers in India or in the emerging economies of Brazil or China and places like that. And so this is, is another sort of reason why, you know, as I looked at exactly what I needed to do in order to remain relevant, that was just to make sure that I was continuing to change and just really making sure that I was able to look at how things were going to go, in my opinion, based on what I was encountering every day, the battles I was winning, the battles I was losing, why I was winning, why I was losing, and just try to really assess that and make a decision about what I thought what's gonna happen in the future. And I really do believe that this understanding strategy, understanding business is the way that a designer remains relevant because over time, unless you're like a Milton Glaser type of person who literally is so gifted and only focused on doing the work, at some point you may move from a position of pushing the buttons to managing people who push the buttons. And so yeah. move from you know actually drawing the, the concepts to inspiring the concepts. So I think it's going to be really important for designers to decide versus being forced or pushed out. It, it's almost like the the title of the last chapter in the book, chapter 15, Portfolios Are Like Cartons of Milk. <laughs> Eventually, our work and our skills has an expiration date. And if we're going to – it's much better to to – To buy a new carton before the old one goes bad, it's much better to decide that you want to evolve versus being forced and having your back up against the wall because you've been coasting and then things change and you're not relevant.
0: Yeah. With my business, I know the one thing that really turned the tide for me is, you know, not just being able to communicate my value to the client, but also to be able to sell the client's time back to them. Right. And that, of course, is, you know, that's communicated through my value. But to let them know that, well, you don't need to worry about X, Y, Z, or you don't have to worry about this because that's something that I can do. And you can now have more time to do, you know, almost like an infomercial Absolutely. type of, <laughs> of selling Absolutely. in a way. But like letting them know that what you're doing is basically giving them the option to buy their time back. Right.
1: And, you know, and
0: you're, you're selling it back to them through the value and the services that you offer. So it's not just about. I can do these cool things in Photoshop, or I know these really great after effects techniques. How does that help the client in the long run? Because if you're able to scratch an itch that maybe they're not communicating to you through their business goals, that's how you end up really forging a relationship with the client and
1: getting long-term work. Absolutely. And I make this point throughout the book that oftentimes I believe all of our clients, no matter what Variety of different projects or uh, things that they need from us, deliverables or you know websites, apps, wh- whatever they're asking us for. They all come to us with the same request, which is solve my problem. It doesn't sound yeah. like that. It sounds like we need a new website, we need a new brand, we need a new logo. What they're asking you for is to solve their problem. And so, if as you were the point you were making is that if you can communicate to them in language that they understand. I think it puts them at ease, you know, that that marketing manager or that CEO is up at night worrying about something. And so if you as a creative person can understand how they define success or failure, then you can also communicate to them in the terms that they understand why your design choices, your aesthetic choices, your strategic choices are relevant to what they're trying to accomplish how they the needle how they hit the mark how they do exactly what they're setting out to do and at that point you know you're able to then I believe again like you can get them to make those creative leaps with you that they're you know you can as um, Ron Berger in the book talks about um, you know making clients comfortable being uncomfortable you can at that point they can understand the language you you're speaking because they you know they didn't learn typographic whatever they didn't learn all the things that we learn they don't live and breathe the creative side of things but they do right. live and breathe the business side and and i always like to say that i think you know designers and creative people we provide the spoonful of sugar that makes the marketing and the business objectives palatable to the public they can't go public without us but at the same time, without us really looking at how to actually achieve the objectives, if we divorce what we do from business and marketing objectives, we're just making art.
0: That's a good way to put it. I like that.
1: Yeah, I mean we've had to look at that, you know, look at it like that, because if not, then it's aimless. And then you can't yeah. defend it. How do you defend that? You know, right. I like it. It's not a compelling business <laughs> objective, you know.
0: So you mentioned earlier your grandfather. I want to go back to Lexington, yeah. South Carolina. Yeah. Tell me what it was like growing up. Were you a, a really creative child? Did you always kind of have this this knack for design?
1: Slim, man, let me tell you, growing up as a kid, I have to say I'm so grateful that I didn't die. Whether it was like I fell out of a moving car at a young age into an intersection. Whoa. I shot off fireworks in the house, burned a hole in the floor. My grandparents, they were sharecroppers, so we were always around and in the fields and, you know, harvesting some sort of produce. So we're in the living room one day shelling butter beans, and I'm I stuck one of them so far up my nose I had to go to the to the emergency room to get it out. There were so many times where I probably should have killed myself, or, or it was it seemed like I was I was trying to do that, but it was just I have to say it was a it was a fun time because we were growing up down south where you could ride your bike as far as you want to and, you know, having a whole bunch of family members with houses and land next to each other, you know, it wasn't as, you know, your parents weren't on, on your back. You, you were really able to roam and go outside and play in the, in the woods and make forts and tree houses and play with matches, which I shouldn't have been doing, but I was kind (laughs) of into everything. Um, That's, that's basically what growing up in Lexington, South Carolina was about. I think as I got a little older, that energy turned into really a lot of behavior problems. And it wasn't until I found in, I think maybe ninth grade, I have to say Lexington's public schools had an excellent art program from K through 12. And when I really started to get serious about art, I was able to channel a lot of that energy that used to get me in trouble into rock carving or painting or Working on the wheel or ceramic sculpture or drawing or printmaking. And so that was really the basis of what I would have to say my transformation was. And I'm just really grateful for that small town's art program.
0: And now from there, you went to Hampton University. I did. Yeah. A lot of people that we, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but I'd say out of the HBCUs of guests that have been on the show, mm. Hampton is probably the one that the most of them have come from. What made you want to go to Hampton and what is special about Hampton that you think probably cranks out so many designs? Oh,
1: man. So it's funny because, you know, I'm the professor who had no intention of going to college. So <laughs> what's really interesting about that story is that, you know, guidance counselors, and I don't know whether it's gotten better and I'm not that old, but at the same time, like I can definitely look back and see the fact that, in high school, I literally had no conversations about college with my high school guidance counselor—not one in four years, not one. And wow. so, if it hadn't been for my some members of my family going to college, if it hadn't been for my my church, every time we would go on a summer trip, going to wherever the black college was in that particular vicinity. Uh, if we were in Florida, it was FAMU. If we were in Virginia Beach, it was you know somewhere around there, Norfolk State or something like that. But I had, I think it was like summer 11th grade year, I said to myself, you know what, if I don't go to college, because I had no plans, there's no conversations about college going on at school. I said to myself, you know what, if I don't go to college, I want to be able to say that I didn't want to go versus I couldn't go. So literally, just to have the choice, I started taking the SAT and I took it three times to get the best score that I could on my own. I decided to go to summer school to take an extra math. I decided to make sure I had my foreign language requirements. And so I graduated, had college requirements, had my SAT scores, and there was no plan to go to college. And so it's the summer after I graduate. I'm doing some community service with the Urban League in Columbia, South Carolina, which is only like 15 minutes away from me in Lexington. And I stumble onto a conversation about Hampton. And it, it's interesting because the person who was at the Urban League, he was also the vice president of recruitment admissions at Hampton for like the South. And so it was great because after stumbling onto that conversation, he was just saying, you know, if you have this, if you have SAT scores, if you have foreign language requirements, if you have, you know, he laid out a few things. He said, you should apply. So I you know, went home that night and I said, mom, going, I'm going to apply. I'm going to go to Virginia. So and I applied and I got in, but it's very interesting. I applied to to the fashion merchandising program, and so I finally get to Hampton's campus, and they tell me that that program has been phased out. And so my next thought was, well, my fashion interest is just a symptom of my larger design or, or art artistic, you know, interest in the first place. I'll take graphic design because I've never I've never done that before. And that's basically how I got into the graphic design field and how I got to Hampton University. It's pretty crazy. Do you feel like
0: Hampton kind of prepared you for the working world after you graduated?
1: I know Hampton prepared me because it was a place where I, I was really exposed to work ethic. And not just okay. work ethic like, you know, I mean, you know, my grandparents taught me, hey, if you're going to cut the grass, you know, you do it right the first. Things like that. So you learn work ethic out in the world. But this prepared, this sort of exposed me to work ethic in the creative field. So I'll never forget our one of our professors there. His name was Lee Brady. He had gone to Yale and he had studied under Josef Albers from the Bauhaus. And so he was just a really weird but so talented. Um, he was an artist. And it was great to hear him talk about the fact that, you know, if they ask you for five, you do 85 and you choose the best five. It was great to see other black designers like or black artists like Ampofo Pofoanti, who is a a ceramic sculpture artist in Washington, D.C., teaching there and just really seeing people like myself participating in this field that I didn't even know anything about. And so it definitely prepared me because there were so many other black people like myself from all corners of the world and we had such a small department It was probably only like 15 of us and so we took all our classes together and it was just a great thing because i i was able to build on the education that i got in lexington so it was a great experience to practice those skills and to 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 learn graphic design at at hampton
0: from there you ended up going to pratt institute you said uh earlier that you ended up moving to new york went to Pratt and then after Pratt went to NYU. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what those experiences were like.
1: So Pratt was amazing because after Hampton, I realized that even though I had internships at the Smithsonian and Disney and NASA, Hampton and my, and NASA had a microgravity joint office and I was able to do what I do, do what I was learning in school in those capacities. So I was able to graduate with a resume, but at the same time, I I knew that I wasn't necessarily ready to go out and work. So I applied to to Pratt and I got in and I was able to really at that point challenge myself on a completely different level. And it was only after I got to Pratt that I realized that a lot of people had that same path. They went to Hampton, then they went to Pratt for their graduate studies. And so I was just another one of those people who had gone from Hampton to Pratt and it was just great because it challenged me in on a level that I wasn't really used to so rewind back to Lexington High School I was very well prepared to go to college because of that artistic foundation and in college I was able to learn things while having the confidence of practicing what I had already learned in high school at Hampton so I learned graphic design and photography But I had already had the confidence of already, you know, trying so many other artistic disciplines. And so when I went to Pratt, I was able to then practice the things that I had learned at Hampton, but on a much higher level. And and around a lot of people who obviously, you know, coming to New York and studying design at Pratt in an art school, it was just amazing to see whether I could even compete or not. And so it was very, very difficult. I was afraid all the time, but at the same time, I realized that, you know, it was time to grow up and determine whether I could compete. And after my first year, I was actually found and hired by my first job. I worked at uh, Juno Online Services in the internet advertising field, and this was back in 1999. And it was great to experience that, not even to apply for my first job, to be found, and to be hired at 22 before I even finished graduate school. And so I think it was a a really interesting time. And then after that, the recession happened, dot-com recession. Mm -hmm. And so for about a year and nine months, I was eating lunch in the park, uh, but also falling asleep every night, not only looking at typefaces, but also applying to every single job that was on you know, Craigslist or Creative Hot List at that time, and leaving people messages at one o'clock in the morning so that in the morning at nine, my message will be the first one that they would answer. And when they call me back, I was actually at that time probably working at the gap folding sweaters so that I could then return their call on my break. Because for a year and nine months, the industry just completely evaporated. And I was literally kicked out of my apartment because I couldn't pay the rent. And just all those things happened. And then when, you know, at the same time, what was great about that time is that I found clients, I freelanced, I scratched together in addition to working at The Gap and stocking DVDs and doing whatever I needed to do. Mm -hmm. I realized that during that time, once the industry did come back and I was able to break into advertising, I was able to then pitch the CEO and the creative director to start a digital arm because I knew how to do all that stuff. And it was during that time that I was able to draw on that year and nine months where I was writing my own contracts. And that was basically the start of my freelance career because I had to. There was no industry to give me a job. And I think Pratt prepared me for when there were no jobs. It didn't prepare me to get a job. It prepared me for when there was no job. I could run the business of myself. And so when things came back, I was prepared because I had already been doing that whenever there wasn't an industry. So, yeah. If you didn't go into design, what do you think you would have done? Good question. I'd probably be on the street begging you for money because it'd probably be very, (laughs) very difficult for me. Like, I'm not a morning person. Because I'm a freelance sort of – I like the – I like to try to find stability and instability, so it was great to be able to show up to work at 10 o'clock and to work on a project until it was over and then to find another job. You know, I'm not the nine to five type of person, you know, I probably wake up at like 10 or 11, but I'll work all night if I need to because I'm more of a late type of person, but I, I, it's very difficult to do the same thing all the time, which is why I love what we do and why I would do what we do for free. But I guess if I had to pick some other profession, I think it would be travel. I'd probably either be a travel agent or a tour guide because I really do love traveling, and that's what helps me to to stay fresh.
0: Now, part of what you do now, as you mentioned earlier, is that you are also a professor, not just a professor uh, at NYU, which is also the school where you got your master's degree, but you also teach online. You've taught for a number of years through How Design University, I guess the main question I have for that is, what have your students taught you? Because certainly you're teaching them what you know and, and about the business and creativity and strategy. But what have they taught you? Yeah,
1: that, that's a really great question. And um, I just to clarify, I um, on graduation day from NYU, when I went back to to school to learn the business side, there I was asked to be uh, on the faculty, and that was just a really great day. And so I was there for about two years before I left and then started to do the stuff online I think what for how design university what I've learned from my students really is that I have to make sure that I'm remaining relevant in the boardroom because if not my students are digital natives and if I'm not relevant in the boardroom because I understand these new technologies that are coming out and I understand how to advise clients on these new technologies coming out whether it's the i you know the apple watch or whether it's you know a platform uh, snapchat or something like that my students keep me on my toes because if i'm not relevant to clients then i have nothing to say to them and mm-hmm. so i think that they challenge me to stay current they challenge me to make sure that i actually do know what i'm talking about and that i can actually remain relevant to my clients because if not they're already going to have the the latest technology because it's who they are. They've probably never dropped the roll of film off at the drugstore and had to wait for a week to get the prints. You know, They've yeah. only known you take a picture from your phone and you upload it to wherever. So that I think is probably the biggest thing. They, they keep me on my toes and they keep me relevant because I know that it's very easy to, to become obsolete if you're not keeping up with the way things change.
0: What keeps you motivated and inspired to continue with with what you're doing? Do you have any mentors that have kind of helped you out?
1: A lot of mentors. Yeah, a lot of mentors. Two uh, that I'll talk about right now. uh, One on the design side, his name is Tony Despina. And uh, I really, really learned a lot from him, not just in the classroom, even though he's like probably, I think, the the best in the world in Spencerian script and typographic illustration. Uh, he also did the illustration i hired him to do the illustration the concept on the cover of my book creative strategy in the business of design but he really has taught me how to how to be a a better professor and i say Mm -hmm. that because i graduated pratt in 2000 and so what i went into pratt in 98 and to this day literally to this day 16 years later if I ask him to come and be a guest speaker in my class, he will show up. If I ask him to help me teach a class, he will he's there. And this is in addition to his global speeches and all the other things that he's doing, it, it, well beyond his commitment to me, his heart has always been to be there and to help his students. And I am so grateful that I could look at him and model what I could be for my students after someone who has been amazing to me for so long, uh, well beyond his, his obligation to, to do so. That speaks volumes about who he is. So on the design side, it's definitely hands down Tony Despina. On the strategy side, I'd have to say it's Dr. Marjorie Coulter. She, also, she wrote the foreword in, in my book. I have to say that I was so impressed with how intelligent she is and how she was able to get the most out of her students when I was one of her students. She inspires you through reaching you intellectually and she's able to elevate the conversation and make you elevate what you can bring to the conversation because she's no nonsense. She won't acknowledge comments that are just for comment's sake. You have to really move the the discussion forward. And I've really learned a lot from how sharp she is and how no-nonsense she is business-wise and she was inducted into the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame in 2012 and I've learned so much about how to inspire my students on the graduate level I teach in the um, integrated uh, branding and integrated communications program at City College on the graduate level now and I try to do my best to reach my students and engage them intellectually as well because of Dr. Marjorie Coulter.
0: What advice would you give to any designers that are kind of just Starting out, I imagine you probably might give the same advice to your students as well, but what do you tell them what they want to sort of follow in your footsteps?
1: Wow. In terms of advice, a lot of my advice has to do with the fact that if you really are serious about participating in this particular field, that you can achieve anything, that it, it really is out there for you. As a student, it's almost like a passport to the world. You could walk into the White House because you're a student. You you have this student ID, and as a result, soak up the opportunities. But mainly, I would probably tell them to find their, take their learning environment seriously and find that one person who's willing to teach them no matter where they're at. You don't have to be in a classroom to have a teacher. My, I, I say oftentimes my grandma was my first teacher. So, like, if you are on a job or if you're out somewhere, there's always going to be, I believe, someone who's willing to actually offer their expertise to invest in you. Find that person and really soak up what they have to offer in order to make sure that you have people who've done it before to actually help to advise you. I try to help students and people who are just are moving out of the classroom and in, and into the field all the time by telling them that they just can't quit and you got to continue to be relevant. You got to learn and change before you're forced to. You've got to you know meet people and make sure that you know you you call them before you need something. You got to stay in contact with your headhunters. You've got to make sure that you're gonna get fired two three four times during your career is gonna happen. So when it does happen, you smile, you shake hands, and you gotta make sure you backed up the work. But I just try to, to have them stick together and try to make sure that they maintain their, their networks just as I have, you know, take classes, meet people, go to conferences, and uh, interact with people because I didn't do it alone, and they won't be able mm-hmm. to do it alone either.
0: Now that you've got the book under your belt, what is your kind of dream project that you'd want to work on? Do you have anything? Yeah.
1: You know, what's really interesting, I would have to say the book is enabling me to have an additional transition throughout my career from, you know, designer to creative director to now an author, a writer. And and I think that what I'd really like to do is collaborate with um, whether it's like how or whether it's some uh, design media property and to offer something consistently in writing I think what I'm I'm sort of in the middle of this metamorphosis where I'm in the infancy of learning what the creativity in words is and it's funny because I've been doing design for so long and I'm really confident with the, the, the picture side of things but I'm not as confident on the on the word side, even though I have a book. Uh, I'm not a writer. And so I'm really enjoying finding out what's possible on the writing side. I just uh, submitted two articles that'll be out in the European Business Review. but I'm really enjoying equipping designers and you know, speaking engagements. But in terms of like projects and things that I'd like to do, I'd really like to continue to write. Just explore that because it's scary it's not what i have trained for all this time even though i understand the subject matter and so i feel like it's really refreshing that it's it's scary it's something that i'm not as confident in but that makes me interested in in learning how to do it better
0: well in a way it's an application of what you talked about earlier about being able to kind of put yourself in the user's shoes right. cuz with a lot of a lot of things with writing i mean it comes down to things that we can't Well, we can sort of necessarily control when you think about the connotation of words and the tone and the structure of sentences. So there's ways that, you know, you can play around with the language. It's pretty malleable to get to a, you know, to like, you know, have a certain point, whether it's satire, whether it's, you know, something more serious. That's kind of the the lovely, fluid language of nature that I, I find that, you know, analogous to design. I mean, certainly there are certain. As you know, there are certain typefaces you can use, which right. will give you a completely different, you know, look and feel right. from something else. It's the same words, same letters, whatever, but whatever the however the typeface has been designed or whatever you use will just give a different Absolutely. feeling or a
1: different meaning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just really interested in it, it's funny because I'm attracted to the things that make me scared. I pay attention whenever I love or whenever I really hate something. So whenever there's a strong reaction in me, I remember I bought a watch one time because I thought it was the ugliest watch I'd ever seen before in my life. And because <laughs> of that, I bought it and I was wearing it and I got so many compliments from it. And it, and I sort of take that as that was the first time I realized, you know what, if I hate something, I'm going to pay attention just as much as if I love something. Or if something makes me afraid, I'm gonna. that's probably the direction I need to go into if I'm scared. And so I have to say that writing is still in that stage where I'm so new at it that I'm not confident and it scares me. And so I'm excited as a result. It was like when I was moving to New York, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm moving to New York. And it was like, oh my gosh, I'm moving to New York. You know, that that fear mixed with excitement, kind of like being on a roller coaster. So we'll see where it takes me.
0: How do we get the next generation of designers kind of excited about working in this field. Mm. Because there's a lot of things that we hear about design as it relates to diversity, as it relates to, you know, funding, to jobs, talent shortage, all these you know kind of things we hear about. What do you think we can do to get that next generation excited about being a part of this industry? I think
1: opportunity and exposure are the things that level the playing field. So, for instance, what you're doing with Revision Path, you are exposing design, uh, something that is, you know, as old as creation as a profession, and yet is still very new to certain demographics, people of color included. Mm -hmm. So I think exposing people, and then from there, having the opportunity to take advantage of what they were exposed to. So I think that that's literally, that's the first thing. And I think the second thing in that Really, and it's this is another reason why I wrote the book is that you you must make sure that you give people the resources, and that you're helping them to understand that what design is and what they can be excited about is the fact that design is your ability to express the values, the the messaging, the objectives of one advertiser or brand to A multitude of people in the audience that they're trying to reach so in that role you become the translator you become the communicator and therefore it's it's great because then you can put flourishes of yourself as long as they don't interfere with that communication between the brand and the target but you are the facilitator of of that communication you're the facilitator of those messages There's so much creativity there, and as an outlet, if you are a person who creates and if you need to create in order to live, this field is amazing because there's you know, you can have a dream at night and then come up with the Super Bowl commercial that's viewed the most the next day, and you know, that's pretty amazing. That you know, I always say to my students, if you have ADD, if you have problems concentrating. Uh, if you've had behavioral problems sit down you're among friends because i'm going to teach you how to actually channel that energy into something that the field is asking for and so i say all that to say that i hope that we can uh i hope that the book that i wrote will help to equip people i hope that what you're doing your efforts as well as the efforts that i'm involved in at the one club with uh tracy smith and and so many other people who have been champions of diversity and they offer different things like the One Club Boot Camp, which is held every year in New York and in Atlanta and different places around the world to expose young people, to give them the opportunity to be exposed to what we do in design because there is a place for us when you look at diversity as a broader definition than just what someone looks like on the outside. This is more about broadening the variety of voices that are in front of and behind the concept and that includes women, that includes, you know, people who are gay, that includes whatever socioeconomic place that you came from, whether you were from a design pedigree or not, we need everybody in order to reach and speak to everybody that our brands want to, to reach. So I hope we can.
0: I hope so too. I really, I really hope so. I mean, with Provision Path, it's been this interesting journey, you know, since I started, I don't want to you know, spend too much time on, you know, just talking about what I'm doing, but but it has been this interesting, well, I mean, it's been this interesting journey of seeing, you know, how, honestly, not just how the design community embraces what I'm doing, but also to see how the general audience that I hope this reaches reacts to it. And when I say general audience, I sort of see that as a subset of the design community. I'm speaking mostly to black designers or to designers of color that, or to people that are just looking outside of the status quo mm-hmm. i'll say that yeah i'll say that that that's a more broader <laughs> right. way to put it I, I hope that it's reaching them and that they're getting you know value out of it that's really my my main goal and
1: I, yeah and i know that will and and again like you know just as we are tasked with targeting the audiences that our brands want to reach i know that they will find that value it just literally is making sure that we can give them the opportunity by finding them, exposing them to what we're doing and making sure that the programs at Hampton continue to pump out designers to make sure the programs are targeting those schools that they might not necessarily look to because the children might be from the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And as a result, obviously like at that point, you're not worried about going to museums and and looking at pretty pictures, you're trying to figure out where your next meal is going to come from. So I think it's going to be yeah. you know, important for us to make sure that we bring the message to places where it wouldn't otherwise get a spread to. We have to drop those seeds in places where we know that they're not talking about design, maybe the same places that we came from, just to make sure that the next group of people and their parents have more information than we did and our, than our parents did. Because at the end of the day, if you're literally trying to figure out you know, where your next meal is coming from – You probably want your child to go into being a doctor or lawyer because you understand that versus basically, you know, being a designer where there's so much money that you invest up front in a MacBook Pro and the programs and printouts and and websites and, you know, iPhones and stuff just to know how to even do it. And so there's all this money going out and they don't, you know, when you graduate, it's like, wait a minute, you got a freelance job. What is that? Why are you still at Mm -hmm. home all the time? And so, you know, a lot of times I think young designers might end up fighting their parents and their parents might end up obviously wanting the best for them, but because they don't understand what we do, it doesn't look like what everybody else does. And it's not supposed to. And I think that part of making sure that these, this next generation has what they need is to make sure that the parents of this next generation understand that when you watch the Super Bowl. When you go to the grocery store, when you look at a website, when you look at TV, you can't escape what we do. What we do is everywhere. And the amount of decisions that have to be made, I always say to my students, ugly is everywhere. And when you think about the amount of junk mail that we get, when you think about, you know, when you pick up your phone, all the different, whether it's a, a text ad or whether it's some sort of banner, literally, you cannot escape what we do as designers and creative people. And so because ugly is everywhere, because the amount of decisions that have to be made are not always made by people who are competent or who are not always made by people who are really good, there's always a chance that you could be that person. There's enough to go around, but I think it's going to be really important to make sure that the next group of parents has the knowledge that our, our parents didn't have so that they don't fight against their kids when they want to do something that they love.
0: Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Wow. What do you think you'll be working on? next
1: five years, I really hope that I'm continuing to expand the things that I write about, uh, my ability to communicate through writing. I hope that I'm continuing to expand my presence, whether it's at HOW or whether it's at the AIGA conferences, my ability to, as a creative person, communicate what my ideas are and what I see as a creative strategist happening in the larger atmosphere to help designers, working designers, as well as up and coming designers understand exactly what context they're creating in so that they can prepare for that. I hope that I can continue to write books. I hope I can just continue to help people to continue to, to add to the opportunity and exposure that I'm talking about. Hopefully you and I can collaborate on something. I think you know, I just want to continue to do what I'm doing now, I have to say, in and, and whatever ways that continues to evolve. I'm just just interested in figuring out what direction I need to go into based on looking at the environment. So I'm pretty excited about the unknown, truthfully.
0: Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? So
1: if you're interested in my book, you can find the book not only on amazon if you search for creative strategy and the business of design you can find it uh, on shelves at barnes and noble right now or at barnesandnoble.com my website is douglasdavis.com and that's douglas with one s and davis d-a-v-i-s but yeah those are the two main places that you can find more with me but also for with for those who are interested in the how. the Design university classes. You can definitely find my class, Creative Strategy in the Business of Design. It's the same name as my book. It actually grew out of that How class to become a larger form book that sits on shelves today. But you can definitely find me there as well. All
0: right. Sounds good. Well, Douglas Davis, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Uh, I mentioned, for people that are listening, I mentioned this before we started recording that I had known about. Douglas for a really long time. It was good to finally actually meet you at How Design Live this year. And I mean, through what you've talked about here, from what you've said with the book and everything, one anecdote that I, I guess I just thought of, and it's, it's interesting because it was sort of similar to what you said about how you had the guidance counselor that mm-hmm. never told you anything about college or anything right. like that. My guidance counselor when I was in high school was actively trying to get me to learn a trade. Mm-hmm which is interesting because her husband and my mother worked at the same school. Like my mother taught there, her husband mm-hmm. taught there. Mm-hmm. So it's not like she didn't know that I came from a, a, a background with college educated parents. Right. And she was really like, well, you could go to, go down to the community college. They have a great HVAC program. Now I graduated at the top of my class right. and she's telling me nothing about colleges, not anything about, vouchers or standardized tests or anything like that all of that stuff i really ended up finding out on my own it was not through her and i grew up you know in a small southern town too in selma alabama so it's it's interesting how those kind of parallels and things kind of still exist but to go back to what i was saying earlier i mean the fact that you're able to really come out of that environment and still learn so much and teach so much to so many people i think the book is just such a fantastic tool that designers need to pick thank up. You. I think if designers are looking to level up from where right. they are, whether they are working somewhere or they're a, a freelancer, if they're looking for that extra knowledge and boost they need to level up, they need to pick up this book. And of course we'll put a link to it and everything awesome. uh, in the show notes. But man, thank you so much Morris, for coming on the show. Thank now.
1: you. And again, it was great to meet you at How Design Live down there in Atlanta. I really, really appreciate being able to give you a copy of the book in person and to to know that that is what created where we're at right now. So thank you again. I really appreciate it.
0: Thoughts of love are in your mind.
1: And that's it for this week.
0: Big thanks to Douglas Davis and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Douglas and his work with the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today, MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain names. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Go and leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two and it really does help bump the show up in those rankings for design podcasts. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash provision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.